0: Well, this does mark our first week of Advent. And Advent is the four Sundays that precede Christmas. And this year, Christmas is on a Saturday, so we'll have, just to kind of give you some update on schedule, we'll have our four Sundays of Advent, and then we'll be celebrating Christmas the day after Christmas. So you guys be with your family on Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, and then come here Sunday morning, and we're going to have a Christmas celebration. And as I was looking, and actually Sonia and I were looking at what to do in terms of preaching this Advent season, um, one of the challenges of something like Advent is that you can kind of fall and try to figure out what do we do different? What's going to be new this year? That's not the same old, same old. And uh, it's the same way with songs, and it's the same way with the sermons and with our readings and you know everything. We want to make it fresh and new because God's word and the truth of God never gets old. But sometimes uh, we can get into these ruts. But Sonia said, Hey, what if, we, what if we looked at the genealogy of Jesus and we preached from some of the people in that list? And I know everyone in here loves your genealogies. I mean, I know when you get to 1 uh, Chronicles, you, you're just so excited to read the he begat th- him and he begat him. And, you know, I, I know that most of us, you know, we, we go to the Psalms and we're like, ho hum, but we get to these lists of names and we get excited, right? So I was really stoked, and I thought, oh, this is going to be great. So I'm looking through these names, and we're thinking, what are we going to do? And Sonia was like, oh, maybe I want to, Sonia's going to share a message this month. She said, maybe I want to do something on Ruth or Rahab. And, you know, as I looked through here, I thought it was interesting. There are four women that are mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus and then Mary. And we have four weeks, and then the Sunday of Christmas. How fitting we could look at these four very special women in the Old Testament and then Mary on the day after Christmas and to help us understand a little bit more about Christ and a little bit more about Advent and our longing in this world by looking at these special stories. And you know, what's really powerful is that typically in genealogies in the ancient Near Eastern world, women are not mentioned. So whenever a woman is mentioned, you know it's something special. So that's what we're doing today. We're going to take these women in chronological order. And so today, we're going to look at a woman named Tamar. Now, does anyone remember who Tamar is? Yeah, we got a few noddings, a few no's. But Tamar was uh, a woman who basically took took her life uh, that was typically hard. It was very difficult for a woman to control much in her life back in the ancient world. And she kind of took her life into her hands to all of our benefit. And so we're going to look at her story today. Uh, But as we do, I want to actually start before her story because it's so important. You know, we, we talked about today in our reading that the world groans and we groan and we long for our salvation. And we long for something different. And, you know, that longing is something that I think every person in the world experiences. There's no one who hasn't suffered hardship There's no one who hasn't felt pain. And so everyone longs for something different. The only difference for someone who's a believer in Jesus Christ is that our longing is not met with nothing. Our longing is met with a promise. And the promise that I want to look at first is a promise way back at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 3. So if you have your Bible, you can turn there. But if not, I'll simply read it to you. In Genesis 1, God creates the heavens and the earth. They are formless and void, and he provides form, and then he fills those forms. So he creates the day and the night on the first day. And on the fourth day, he fills the day and the night with the sun and the moon and the stars. On the second day, he uh, creates this distance between the waters and the heavens and the waters and the deep, between the atmosphere and the ocean. And he fills the air, the atmosphere, atmosphere, on the fifth day with the birds and on the And the sea with the fish. And then on the third day, God creates the final form, land. He separates land from water. And so on the sixth day, he creates the animals and the vegetation. And he creates man and woman, Adam and Eve. And on the seventh day, he rests. But in the time of his resting, Adam and Eve are living in this perfect place, this Garden of Eden, where God is with them. He walks with them. Everything is good. Their labor is easy. They do work in the garden. Work does not cease. Uh, just because there's no sin in the world, but it is a perfect work, and it's a perfect world, and they have perfect relationship, and Adam and Eve know each other, and they know God with no shame. And you know the story. Um, God tells Adam, you can have whatever you want to eat, but don't eat this one tree, the fruit of it, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the knowledge of good and evil for Adam and Eve represents the desire to decide and determine their own future apart from God. They don't need God to tell them what to do. If they eat this fruit, they will know what to do for themselves. And so God says, don't eat of this. It's a, it's a test. And of course, Adam and Eve fail that test. There's a serpent who comes along who is the embodiment of, really, of Satan on earth and the tempter, the one who comes, and he says to Eve, did God really tell you not to touch that fruit, which God had never said not to touch it, but she said, yes, he said not to touch it, not to eat it. Uh, And he says, God is tricking you. He doesn't want you to be like him. And he knows if you eat this fruit, you'll be like him. And there's some truth to that. Adam and Eve would in some ways be like God after they eat the fruit. Uh, But they didn't understand the full implication. So Eve eats the fruit. She gives the fruit to Adam. He eats the fruit. And then they experience sin and shame and death for the first time. And so God comes in chapter 3 and he curses the serpent and he curses the woman and he curses the man. And I want us to focus this morning on the curse that he makes to the serpent. So in Genesis 3, verse 14, it says this. So God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity, meaning he's going to make enemies out of them, between you and the woman, between your seed and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And what we have here in, the chap- in chapter 3 of Genesis at the very beginning of the Bible is we have the first promise of the gospel. God says there is the there is the seed of the serpent and there is a seed of the woman. And the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman will be enemies eternally. And the seed of the serpent is going to, and and the word we sometimes translate it crush and strike. In Hebrew they're the same exact word. He says the seed of the serpent is going to strike or crush the heel of the seed of the woman, but the seed of the woman is going to strike or crush the head of the seed of the serpent. And in Hebrew, the, that word crush or strike often means a deadly blow. And so, for those who have eyes to see, right there in Genesis 3, we see that those who follow Satan, or say the seed of Satan, will put to death the promised seed of the woman. But it will only be the kind of death that affects somehow his heel. Whereas the seed of the woman will put to death the seed of the serpent by crushing his head. And so at the very beginning of the Bible we have this this, um, seed, uh, a different kind of seed, (laughs) a thought seed, to put into the people of God that there will be a death of a savior but there will be an ultimate death of our enemy. Now, This promise was something that was read and known, uh, but maybe not understood fully, most likely not understood fully by the people of God for hundreds and thousands of years. Paul even calls it the mystery of the gospel that is unveiled only when Jesus comes. But what we see is this, this promise continues through the Old Testament. And if you've been around a long time, you've probably heard me talk about this before. But, but the story that's right after this is the story of Cain and Abel. Well, Cain and Abel are both uh, sons of Eve, right? Uh, but one of them becomes the son of the serpent, a seed of the serpent. And the other is the seed of the woman. One puts his brother to death. Uh, so he shows himself to truly be the seed of the serpent. He's a, he's a son of Satan. So Cain uh, is drawn to evil instead of being drawn to righteousness. So then Eve has another son, and she names him Seth. And, um, and she even says, you know, may, God, may you bring forth a son for me. She's not trusting in herself this time. She's trusting in the Lord to bring forth this seed. And then the whole story of Genesis, you know, the genealogies, the stories, Noah, uh, Enoch, all these people you constantly see a battle between the sons of the serpent and the sons of the woman, or the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, the offspring of each. And in the, book, in the story of Noah, God says, hey, there's so much evil. I'm going to destroy this with the flood. But I'm going to preserve a seed, right? He preserves Noah and his sons. And even from Noah's sons, one of them is declared righteous. Uh, Shem is righteous. The other is, you know, Ham is, is the seed of the serpent. Uh, And this story goes on and on until we get to the story of Abraham. And in Abraham, in Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abraham out of his country. And in chapter 12, verse 1, he says, The Lord said to Abraham, or Abram at that time, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to a land I will show you. And I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and on whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And so Abraham carries the promise of the seed, right? And you know the story of Abraham, right? He can't have a son. So God miraculously provides an offspring or a seed for Abraham and Isaac. And then Isaac has a son. Actually, he has two sons. One of them is the seed of the serpent. One of them is the seed of the woman, Ironically, the, deceit, the deceiver, Jacob, uh, is the, the seed of the woman. And then Jacob has 12 sons. And we see their story play out, and it's pretty messed up. Right? So part of the story of Jacob's sons, we read in Genesis chapter 38. And that's where we're going to spend the rest of our time today. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis 38. That's just our, that's just our update on history of where we are at this point in the scripture and where we are at this point in the world and what God is going to do. So Jacob has 12 sons. These become the 12 heads of the tribes of Israel, right? And so all the 12 tribes of Israel um, are, are his 12 sons. And you probably know the story about Joseph who's sold into slavery and all that. Well, that has already happened. He's been sold into slavery, but Jacob is still in Canaan. He's still not in Egypt yet. And here's the story we get. So at that time, meaning this is the time after Joseph has been sold into slavery, after he's gone, Judah, who is one of the sons of, his, of Jacob, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adalam named Hira. There Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her and made love to her and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. And he was named Ur. She conceived again and gave birth to a son and named him Onan. And she gave birth to still another son and named her named him Shelah. And it was at Kesib that she gave birth to him. Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. We have no idea what made Ur so wicked. But it was enough that God said, you are, you're going to be cut off as a seed. You are not going to be a part of this promise. So then Judah said to Onan, his second son, sleep with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to raise up offspring for your brother. Now, this is so weird for us because culturally, this makes no sense. right? The very last thing that anyone here would do if their brother died would be to go have a child with his wife for him. But this was commonplace in the ancient Near Eastern world uh, for a couple of reasons. One of the reasons is that uh, property and land would always pass from a father to a son. And so women at that time didn't have legal rights. They couldn't own property. And so this was a way to provide an heir for someone who died before they could have children, is that this brother would would go and have a child on behalf of the one who died with his, with his widow. And, you know, this creates complications that you can probably, can, can probably imagine. So first of all, so now uh, let's say you've had a son with your dead brother's widow. And that son's not your son. That's your brother's son. And then so what happens if you have other children? What if you don't have any other sons? What happens to your property? Where does it go? You know, it creates these dilemmas. And so Onan was not excited about this. Probably, I mean, there could have been other reasons as well. But it says in verse 9, they said, Onan knew the child would not be his. So whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from providing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death also. God says, you're not worthy To be part of this promise you're not going to have a seed either so then judah said to his daughter-in-law tamar live as a widow in your father's household until my son shelah grows up for he thought he may die too just like his brothers so tamar went to live in her father's household so here's judah Um, he has three sons two of them have already died he has one son left. Now, this is Judah's only hope now for his own offspring, for his own seed, for, for the, his own ability to hand on everything that he has to a son. And he says, well, maybe this Tamar girl is cursed because the first son that married her died and the second son that married her died. So maybe if my third son marries her, he'll die too. And so Judah... What he does is he essentially withholds his third son from Tamar. Now it's hard again for us to understand what this would mean for Tamar, because in our culture we don't worry about these things the same way. I had a I had a friend. Uh, I have a friend. His name's Brian. And when we were teenagers, sixteen years old, I was driving with Brian, and near his house there were all these hills, right? And um, we thought, hey, you know, it'd be fun. Let's drive really fast and see if we can get that roller coaster feeling when we go over the hills. Right? So he's like, hey, that's a great idea. This is the best idea I've heard all day. So we hop in my car, which is just a Nissan Sentra, you know, four cylinder. But man, that pedal was always to the floor, and room, off we go, and we're going over the hills. And we go over this hill. And we, we're, we've got this sense of elation and joy and excitement and then dread as we see the police officer on the other side of the hill going the other direction. And I'm like, oh, no. So I slam on the brakes, but it's too late. The lights come on. He spins around. He comes and pulls me over in someone's driveway. It's this little two-lane road. And his mom comes to pick him up. We're not even half a mile from their house. And then my dad had to come pick me up because the police officer didn't arrest me, but he would not let me drive home. So a few days later, I went to Brian's house, and I knocked on the door, and his mother answered. Now, at this point, Brian's dad had already passed away, and his mom said to me, Stephen, Brian is my only son She had three daughters and a son Brian is my only son And You cannot drive like that with him in the car And of course being me I thought if it had been one of your daughters It would have been fine (laughs) But I didn't say that (laughs) But I didn't say that But here's the thing It was her only son Now If something had happened to me and to Brian She still would have owned her property She still would have had her assets. She still would have had legal protection in the world. She could have gone to court for anything she needed to go for. She could testify on her behalf or for others in the court of law. She would absolutely dread the loss of her son. But for Tamar, she would have none of those things without a son. The only protection she had in the world was her father. And when her father died, she would be destitute, and she would have no legal recourse if anyone did anything against her. So she was in dire straits. It's just, it's just a different dynamic. So for her, a son meant a protection of her status. It meant a protection of her property, her inheritance. It meant a provision for her in her old age someone who would be able to take care of her when she could no longer take care of herself. It meant legal protection and care. It meant a covering. She was longing for a son, understandably so. And Judah, in his uh, disobedience and in his lack of faith in the Lord, was withholding this son from her who would take care of her, provide for her, and be her covering. That's what Judah was doing. Now, Judah is a son of Jacob. Jacob is part of the promise. And so Judah's probably not even thinking about this, but he's also withholding not just uh, uh, the need and the Savior for Tamar, but he's withholding the needs and withholding a Savior for Israel. Because Israel is trusting and these 12 sons of Jacob to establish a a nation and to live out the promises that God made to Abraham. In Genesis 12, I will bless those who bless you. Those who curse you, I will curse. I will bless the world through you. And Judah doesn't know this, but he is uh, endangering the promise of Genesis 3 that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the seed of the serpent. Judah doesn't know it yet, but later in his life, Jacob will prophesy that out of Judah will come kings. Out of those kings, we will meet. That the first one will be King David and King Solomon, and then his children and his children and his children all the way down that that really boring but incredibly important genealogy at the beginning of Matthew chapter one that leads to Jesus. And so Judah has put the salvation not only of Tamar on the line, not only of Israel on the line, but he's put the salvation of the world on the line in his disobedience and his lack of faith. Now in the law, if all the brothers die, an ancient Near Eastern custom, if all the brothers die, then the person who is to provide an offspring for the dead son is the father. Again, we would not do this, but this is how it was. This is how it was done. But but Judah has been a deceiver, just like his father Jacob was a deceiver. Um, but you know what? Tamar knows a little bit about deception too. So here's what she does. In verse twelve of chapter thirty-eight in Genesis, after a long time. Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. And when Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah to the men who were shearing his sheep, and his friend Hira and the Adullamite went with them. And Tamar was told, Your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep. She took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and sat down at the entrance of Ennaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that though Shelah had now grown up, she had not been given him to him as his wife. She knew that Judah was not going to fulfill his commitments. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. And not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. What will you give me to sleep with you, she asked. I'll send a young goat from my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it, she asked. He said, What pledge should I give you? your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand, she answered. So he gave them to her and he slept with her and she became pregnant by him. After she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. Meanwhile, Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, in order to get his pledge back from the woman, but he did not find her. And he asked the men who lived here, where is the shrine prostitute who was beside the road at Enaim?" There hasn't been any shrine prostitute there, they said. So he went back to Judah and said, I didn't find her. Besides, the men who live there said there hasn't been any shrine prostitute there. And Judah said, let her keep what she has or we will become a laughing stock. After all, I did send her this young goat, but you didn't find her. And, after, and three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution and as a result is now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. And she was being brought out. She sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her my son Shelah. And he did not sleep with her again. Let's just stop there. There's so much here, right? And there's so much that's worth talking about. um, And we don't have time for all of it, but just... Consider for a moment the power dynamics at play between this wealthy uh, property owner, Judah, and this uh, powerless and and essentially ultimately will be impoverished widow, Tamar. Um, The dynamics between a rich man and a prostitute. Uh, The dynamics between... Uh, a powerful father-in-law and a weak daughter-in-law who's discovered to be pregnant how he's going to have her literally burned to death and there's so much there about the dysfunction and and really the um, what can happen when people who have power people who have honor people who have uh, from the lord Gracious gifts and blessings, use them not for the kingdom of God, but for their own advancement or protection at the expense of others. Man, there's so much there, right? And that's an important thing to note. And there's also a a powerful woman who, uh, even though she has no power culturally, she creates her own power, so to speak, through deception and through, uh, through cunning, if you will. But we don't want to miss that what's at stake here is the promise of that seed. What's at stake here is not just Tamar's uh, salvation, so to speak. She needs a savior. Not just Israel's salvation either. but The salvation of the world. Salvation of all humanity through Jesus Christ. That's what's at stake. And what we see here is that God will not be stopped even by the promised people, even if it means having an outsider come in and do what God's people should have done, God will not be stopped. The stories that we read in the Old Testament, how often are they stories of people who can't have children and then they have children, right? Almost every single one of those people, their children are a seed of the woman, who are in battle battle with the seed of the serpent. And almost every one of those stories is actually someone who is an ancestor of Jesus Christ. And if we forget the story that runs through all the stories, we won't notice that. We won't see how it all ties together. But God is tying everything together. So whether it's the two sons, Cain and Abel, where one is the seed of the serpent and the other is killed, and God provides another son... Whether it's the story of Noah who God preserves a seed with Noah and his sons. Whether it's a childless Abraham who miraculously has a son, Isaac. Whether it's Jacob and Esau and God preserves Jacob uh, and preserve his seed. Whether it's the famine that comes to Canaan to, to this land where Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have settled and God saves through one of the seed, through Joseph, saves the whole known world from famine. And protects God's people from starvation. Whether it's Judah's sin, whether it's Boaz who's childless and Ruth who's childless, whether it's the exile, whether it's the destruction of Israel and the destruction of the temple, whether it's the attacks from the Canaanites and the Philistines and all of these things, whether it's the Egyptians who are trying to kill every boy uh, uh, born to the Israelite women before the Exodus. And whether it's King Herod who tries to kill every boy in Bethlehem to stop the arrival of Jesus, God is always protecting a seed. God is always preserving a line because God is always ensuring his promise. And so here's Tamar. And she is called righteous by Judah. Righteous for dressing up, disguising herself to look like a prostitute, sleeping with her father-in-law to bear a child. Now, by most accounts, we would not consider that righteous behavior. But one of the things that we see over and over in the Old Testament, and we're going to see it uh, in a few of the other stories even that we're going to look at this Advent is that the ultimate definition of righteousness is not someone who follows every letter of the law. The ultimate definition of righteousness is someone who believes in the promises of God. Tamar believed in the promises of God. She knew the stories. She would have to have known the stories because these are the stories that Jacob and his sons and their family would have told over and over and over again. These are the stories that were being handed down from one generation to another until they were written down uh, in the Exodus by Moses. These are the stories that she was putting her faith in, even when Judah was not. So when it came time, verse 27, for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. And as she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand. So the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on his wrist and said, this one came out first. But when he drew back his hand, his brother came out, and she said, so this is how you have broken out. And he was named Perez. And then his brother, who had the scarlet thread on his wrist, came out, and he was named Sarah. And Sarah and Perez became the sons of Judah. And it's through this line that eventually we get King David, as I mentioned. And it's through this line that eventually we get King Jesus. You know, Tamar was longing for something, you know, maybe I don't want to over exaggerate how much she was trusting in the promises of God. Maybe she was mostly thinking of herself. But she was longing for a son to come into the world to save her. And the people of Israel have been longing for a son to come into the world to save them. And when Jesus was born to Mary and Joseph in that stable amongst the animals, That was the fulfillment of that promise. And then Jesus lived his life. He ministered. He he showed what it could be like when God's son is on the earth and God's son is active and the kingdom of God is coming to bear and the promises are being fulfilled. What it looks like to take power over the seed of the serpent and over the serpent himself. And when Jesus was put to death on the cross, that was the first part of the fulfillment of that prophecy in Genesis 3 that the serpent the seed of the serpent will crush his heel meaning strike a deadly blow to his heel. Jesus died. But he was just dead in the heel if you will. He came back to life. And Jesus ascended into heaven and he said I will return and when he returns what we read at the very end of the book we started in the third chapter from the beginning just a few chapters from the end jesus comes and he finds not a serpent but a dragon and he crushes that dragon's head he kills him in the head this is the promise this is the longing this is what we're waiting for jesus will return he will put an end to hardship and suffering and evil he will put an end to sadness and destruction and death that's what advent's about We long again, we long again for the coming of this promise. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, our hope in this world and our longing in this life can only be fulfilled by Jesus, just as it could only be fulfilled by Jesus the first time. Yes, Tamar, she got... uh, She got the son she longed for. But Tamar still died. Uh, Israel got a king. And yet, Israel was still cast out of the land in exile. The only Savior that is a true Savior is that special seed that's ultimately not only the seed of the woman, but the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we pray that you help us to uh, continue to long, but to not long desperately. Lord, to continue to yearn for something greater, but not do it without hope. And so, Lord, even as we anticipate uh, our subject for next week, which is hope that we have in Jesus Christ, let us yearn and long with hope. Let us uh, not grow complacent here in this world, but remember that this world is passing away and a better one is coming and to not uh, be tempted to be satisfied now but to keep pressing forward to what is to come. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.